If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel. We actually have moved past um, 1 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel. Um, I'm gonna, going to review just a little bit. Uh, but before I do, I wanted to say uh, that Ann and I had a great time in Savannah. I thoroughly enjoyed being able to watch the service from there. And I just want to publicly say thank you, Brian, and everybody that works back in the back for all that you do. It was really neat to be able to sit in a hotel room in Savannah, Georgia, and watch all you guys. So thank you very much for all your service and all the hard work that you do. I thought that the, the, uh, the music was amazing. The preaching was phenomenal. It was, I would go to church here. So... We saw last week that David finally got his crown. You know, we've gone for 14, 15 years from the time that Samuel anointed this young teenager and said, you will be the king of Israel. And none of that has happened. He's run around in the woods. He's had the king try to kill him. He's had worthless men, the Bible tells us, that, that came around him. As we read in this psalm, it was like everywhere he turned, it was almost like there was a snare. Every, to his right hand, there's somebody trying to trap me. To his left hand, there's something going to mess me up. And David says here in the psalm that, that Ann and Ruthie read, he felt powerless. There was nothing that could be done. And we've talked throughout 1 first, first Samuel that that's exactly where God wants us to be. That when we realize we can't do this on our own, that that gives us the ability to cry out to God. And we've talked a lot about how our ideas that I'm in control of my own life is a facade. It's fake. We saw that in the life of this church this week. I had the great honor and the, the sad privilege of burying uh, Tom Wimburn, those of you who don't know, he's the, the little guy that sat right here. And um, whenever anybody came to pray, Tom would be the one to pray with them. And I, I shared in the funeral, sometimes when you're, you're the preacher, it's hard um, for yourself to mourn. And to think about how sad it is that, uh, you know, I won't have Tom amening at times that don't quite fit with the sermon. And you're going, what exactly did he amen about that for? Um, I, I won't have Tom, I, I could always, I'd be sitting in my office and I'd hear him curb his car. And I knew it was Tom. And he would come in, and generally speaking, the reason why he came to see me during the week was he had just ran into somebody in Walmart and told them about Jesus. And he was asking me to pray for Thelma Lou that he met at Walmart, or Susie Q that he met in Cracker Barrel, or Billy Bob that he met while he was at the mechanics. We as a church have lost a great warrior for the kingdom. So let us step up to the plate now. Let us open our mouths and tell people the way Jesus, about Jesus the way Tom did. His son shared a story that I thought was very uh, fitting. His son said that uh, his son is a pastor in uh, Pennsylvania, and that Tom had come to visit and they were in a grocery store there in Pennsylvania. And this lady said, man, it's awful hot. And Tom looked at her and said, not as hot as it will be in hell if you don't call on the name of Jesus. And he immediately started telling this woman about Jesus. And, and his son, Thomas, said, I was embarrassed at 
first because my dad was embarrassing me, and I was then embarrassed because I'd never told that lady about Jesus. And so let us, as a church, fill that gap. He is home. We don't have to worry about him. He is dancing before the throne. And so David, as we see in this story, is alone. He is helpless. He has nothing he can do. And so he successfully, year after year, has cried out to the Lord. And God has taken that time to prepare him and equip him to be the king that he would be for the next 30 years. David, after Saul dies, remember the story that Saul died, the the two idiots came and said, hey, we're the one who killed him. And David said, oh, really? And so he dealt with that. And and, um, David then falls on his knees and says, God, do I go up? Do I go assume the throne? And God said, go on. And so that's the redneck translation of that. He said, go on now. And so David went on, and then he, 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 he prayed at every step. He said, where do you want me to go, God? God said, Go to Hebron. And so he went to Hebron. And in Hebron, David is anointed King David over the house of Judah. Not over the nation of Israel. In fact, what ends up happening is is Saul's commander, who just happens to be Saul's nephew, ends up setting up a puppet king in this guy named Ishboeth. And so David is king over one tribe, and the other 11 tribes are calling Ishbosheth their king. And Ishbosheth is a weak leader. He's actually being controlled by Abner. Now, David, we see in, in uh, the, the text that Chad preached on, um, does what's right. And he sends to the people that buried Saul and said, you know what? May God bless you for doing the right thing. And you read that in the story and it kind of jumps out because it's not politically advantageous for David to do. They're not following him as king. They're not even in his little kingdom. They're in Ishbosheth's kingdom. And yet he does, even though it's not going to help him politically, even though nobody's telling him to do it, he does what's right just because it's right. Well, Ishbosheth is the king in Saul's place, and David is king in Hebron. Well, Ishbosheth is king, but really the person who's in control is this guy named Abner. We first hear about Abner in 1 Samuel 14, and we're told that the name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner, son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. So Abner is Saul's nephew, and he is the one who's actually in control of the military. He's the guy who uh, can control everything. And in 2 Samuel 2, we read, Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over and made him king over Gilead. And the Asherites and the Jezreel and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. So here David is finally wearing the crown, and yet it still has an asterisk. It's still not all that God promised. And Abner is playing this game where he's got Ishbosheth, who's running around like the king, but he's really controlling things. And those kind of situations typically don't last for very long. Now, what ends up happening is, is Abner 
gets a girlfriend, and that girlfriend is one of Saul's girlfriends. Um, oh, the tangled webs we weave. And uh, there's some commentators that su- suggest that if ever, because Abner took a concubine of the king, that that was him saying that he was actually the king. There's some who were saying that it was just it was just him doing something that was untoward. It doesn't really matter. The long and short of it is, is Abner and Ishbosheth get sideways with each other, and there's a power struggle. And so Abner goes to David and says, I'll follow you. Now, the, the narrator wants, and he goes over and over and over again, that David was not involved in all these plots that were going on. David was just doing what he's supposed to do. Everything else was happening all around him, and yet he was just doing the things that he was supposed to do. So often, our lives would be better if we would stay out of all the drama and just do the stuff that we got to do. And you know what? The, The worst thing in the world in this is Facebook and Instagrams and all that stuff because we got everybody's business laid out in front of us, and so we get all caught up in drama about stuff that ain't got nothing to do with us. And I can tell you, I, I, I'm guilty of it too. I've been sitting there reading on the face pages and, and I can't believe that this is, go, this is uncalled for. And then realize that, you know what, this is never going to affect my life and it doesn't matter. And I've gotten riled up about something that don't mean a hill of beans. Again, that's the redneck translation of that. Um, I'm not sure why we want a hill of beans, but apparently it ain't worth a hill of beans. Or two dead flies, as David likes to say. So David wasn't involved in any of this stuff that's going on. It's just happening around him. Now, you may remember from, from Chad's sermon that Abner uh, um, had killed Joab's brother. And so Abner meets with David and says, we want to follow after you. He admits that God was the one who had David ordained. In fact, in 2 Samuel 3, in our text, we read this. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. And this is what Abner says. For the Lord had promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, a different tribe. So they all knew that God had told David he was supposed to be king. They knew what was right, but they were doing what they wanted to do anyway. They were ignoring what God had said was the way to do it. They would, Abner wanted to be the man behind the throne, so even though he knew that David was supposed to be king, he has put this dude Ishbosheth up there. He is doing what he wants to do, even though he knows what's right. Well, the chickens come home to roost. And Joab comes in, finds out that David's been talking to Abner, says, hey, you know that he's a turncoat. You know that he's a bad dude. Here's what you need to... uh, He's just come in here to spy on you. And so he calls for some servants to go get Abner. David has no clue that this is going on. And when Abner comes back to him, Joab kills him causing all kinds of political conflict. Now again, David in this situation, instead of celebrating that the power behind the throne of his enemy has been killed, he mourns. In fact, the day of of Abner's funeral, David refuses to eat because he's so sad. He's fasting. He's just doing what he's supposed to do. 
And all of Israel saw the way that David acted, and they thought it was good. He's not playing games. He actually wants what's best. And so we now have Abner dead, who was the power behind the throne. And then Ishbosheth's end is coming as well. So Ishbosheth, apparently, it, they had a tradition there in those days that I think we should adopt because it's clearly biblical. They took a nap every day at noon. So I, I think if we could just go ahead and get to work on that. And if you could all not contact me between 12 and about 1.30, I'm napping. Um, so Ishbosheth has taken his nap. These two guys come in. They pretend that they're coming in for legitimate purposes. They sneak in and they kill Ishbosheth. The Bible, being honest, tells us exactly what happens. They cut off his head. They go and find David and bring Ishbosheth's head. Again, they should have known what happened to the people that attacked Saul in the middle of a battle before they came to David. Because it's not going to work out well for them. And in fact, David says, you ain't the brightest bulb in the bulb box. Again, the redneck translation. He says, if I killed the man who said that he killed Saul in battle, what do you think I'm going to do to you who killed a man in his bed? You know that those guys at that moment realized that they had messed up. And so David has them killed. And he has Ishbosheth's head buried with Abner. And that's the end of the story. Now, two months ago when I put together the sermon outline, I titled this sermon, Heavy is the, Heavy is the Head. The quote from the Shakespeare uh, play where Shakespeare writes, Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Because as I was just reading through these stories, trying to break up the outline, it appeared to me that what this story was showing us was that David had been fighting for something all this time, and then once he became king, he realized that, no, maybe it isn't exactly what I want. And so that was kind of the direction I was leaning. But as I began preparing this sermon, I saw that that is not at all what the writer is doing here. In fact, it's really clear that the narrator here is telling one side and then the other side. One side and then the other side. One side and the other side. So that we could see in the life of David, a man who when he comes up to a problem, falls on his knees and prays about it. That when God says, go up to Hebron, he says, yes sir, and he goes up. A man who even though it doesn't politically help him, it isn't going to hook him up, it isn't going to make him buddies with everybody, he does what's right just because it's right. So you have that on the one hand, and then you have on the other hand, Abner and Ishbosheth running around, playing political intrigue, trying to do things to the best of their ability. It reminds me of what the book of, Josh, um, the book of Judges says. They were doing everything that was right in their own eyes, and it all fell apart. The narrator here in 2 Samuel is trying to show us one man who is doing it God's way, and these other men who are doing it man's way, and what the end of that is. And as I look at that, I can see how Ishbosheth and Abner are really reaching. They are really trying to figure out how to play this game. And in reality, they're settling for second best. Clearly, from David's morning, he respected Abner and would have put him in his military. Ishbosheth, if he had followed after Jonathan's son, would have been an honored person in David's court. And yet, they were fighting, they were clawing, they wanted what was mine. 
and it all fell around, apart around them. And as I thought about my own life, I, you know, as I talked to Garrett and Chad and I meet as we talk about how to prepare a sermon, one of the things that I always try to hammer is the first step is to let the text beat you up. And I want to say that this has convicted me of how often we settle for second best, or third best, or fourth best, or 50th best. I had that, uh, Ruthie gave me a great sermon illustration for that just Friday night. Anne had a, a party to go to, William was off uh, at the gym, I- Emily and, and Ruthie and Li- uh, Lizzie had all gone off somewhere, and so it was just me and Ruthie at home, and so I went to Ruthie and said, Ruthie, let's me and you go out tonight. You can go anywhere you want, baby. I will take you wherever you want to go. And I actually said the words, the world is your oyster. Where do you want to go? And she said, let's go to Hardee's. <laughs> and I said, hmm. Baby, I'm telling you, you can go anywhere you want to go. If you, if you want a good burger, there's some places around where we can get a good burger. Uh, you can go to Pruitt's and get a great burger. We can go to Big Chief, get a big chuck, I'll let you eat. Whatever you want, you can have. So don't, don't go to Hardee's. Where do you want to go? And she, she said, kind of sheepishly, cool, could we go to McDonald's? I'm like, you're still not hearing me, child. Get in the car, and we'll start moving toward. And I said, you're not understanding. I'll take you to Jefferson's. I'll take you. I'll take you wherever you want to go. Where do you want to go? And then, then as we were going down Fort Worth, she goes, well, "We could go to Taco Bell." And I'm like, "Oh, for the love! <laughs> I want to go to a real restaurant." Your, your mom gave me the credit card and said, "Take your daughter out. We're going someplace nice." And I said, "What do you want to eat?" And she said, "Well, I, I, I want a hamburger. What do you want to eat?" And she finally said. I, I want a steak. And I said, well, I know someplace where we can get a good steak. And we went to Topo the River. And she got her a steak and some pie. And she had something that she wanted to have. So when I offered to her, you can go anywhere you want to go, she aimed low. Hardee's. <laughs> Nothing against the fine folks at the Hardee's Corporation, but for the love Come on. And you know what? We do that in our Christian walk all the time. When I do marriage counseling, I have this happen to me all the time where I'm sitting across from a couple who, because those butterflies, when you first get married, you know, when, and I always joke about the, the, the wife sitting there going, Mrs. Jonathan Jones. Ah. Oh. When those butterflies fade, you believe the lie that the enemy's telling you that I've just grown out of love. Those butterflies ain't love. And so somebody at your office or somebody passes by and flirts with you a little bit, you get butterflies again and you go, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. That's stupid. You're sacrificing the best on the altar of the immediate. Because as you go through those times that don't, according to movies and according to music, feel like love, those times when you walk into the, your, your house and the floor's caved in and you're like, ah, and you work together to fix it, or those nights when your kids will not sleep, 
How many parents have ever experienced that? I one time when Emily was little bitty, we were at a church, and this little old lady that loved Jesus with all her heart uh, got a from somebody else's diaper bag like a weak old bottle of formula and fed it to, to Emily. And Emily was a fat little thing, and so she just, just sucked it dry. And so that was on a Sunday night. By the time we got her home, she was throwing up. And by 4 o'clock that morning, we were literally out of sheets. And she's still screaming because her tummy was upset and throwing up. And Ann and I both are like, somebody's got to die in the middle of this. I mean, I'm ready to call Mama up on the phone. And go, what is your problem? And I'm just mad, and I just want to sleep. And every time you would double, ah, it's like, oh, for the love, that sound. Now, I eventually, after five kids, grew out of that. I will say I've joked that when I was in the Marine Corps, we went to this school where to keep you awake, they played loud, crazy rock and roll music and babe, the sound of a baby crying. And they'd play it loud, and it'd just keep you awake. And you'd be, you know, you're a 19-year-old kid. You're, you're wired, and oh, my gosh, can they please just turn that off? And now, see, I could just sleep right through that. I would be out, and they'd be, wah, wah, wah. And I'd just, honey, get that, and get on that. I could sleep through that like no problem. But at that time, I just wanted it to be over. Stop. But those moments, we know that's love. You're not angry at the child. You know that you want what's best for that child. And so you stay up. You care for the child. You walk around bobbling the child. You put the baby down. You keep your hand on the baby to keep the baby asleep. If you have to put a book on the baby so you can take your hand out, that's okay. You do what you got to do because you love that child. And it's the same thing with a marriage over time. As you go through those peaks and valleys, there are times when I know Ann rolls over in the bed and looks at me and says, why did I marry that? <laughs> it's guaranteed to, be, to happen. But I can tell you that when I was 21 years old and I stood at an altar and looked at that beautiful red head and that flowing white robe, robe uh, dress and said, I love you, I had no clue what those words meant. I had no idea what they meant. And I know six years later when I stood in a hospital in Plano, Texas and looked down at a little screaming, squally, ugly, purple thing that they were telling me was my baby. I'm sorry, all of you have had babies. When babies are first born, they're ugly. <laughs> I, I, I always, I, when I leave to go to the hospital when a newborn's born, the aunt's like, you just need to shut your mouth. Because they'll go, oh, isn't it precious? And I'm like, ah, is it human? What is that? Because they're all greasy. And they, I know there's some pregnant moms in here. I'm not saying that. They're just nasty looking when they're first born. Their head and necks don't work. And they, stuff coming out of all of that. It's just nasty. But I remember looking at that little squirmy alien. And, and knowing that when Ann and I first said we loved each other, we had no clue what it meant. And you know what? As I look at her today. I look back at where I was then and know that I had no idea what the word love means. And I pray that that continues to grow. If you sell out cheap, when it's hard, when you're arguing over the bills and you argue over stuff that doesn't matter, and you get in the car and you can't figure out, just, I just want to eat somewhere. We were talking today about how there, you, every married couple has the argument. Where do you want to eat? I, I don't care. Where do you want to eat? Well, all right, well, let's go to trade. No, I already had Italian. I thought you said you didn't care. When you have those kind of arguments, those are going to pass. 
And with each one, it gets richer and deeper and better and richer and deeper and better as you truly are exposed to what love is. Love is sacrifice. Don't sell out cheap. You're walking away from a steak dinner to go to Hardee's. And that's, marriage is one example that's easy to point to. Everything in our life is that way. We can sell God out cheap and forget that He has given us His very best. This week I had a conversation with a teenage boy who was telling me, he's like, I just, I want, want, I want to follow after God. It's just, it feels like that all of whatever God is telling me over and over is, no, you can't drink, you can't dip, you can't run around with girls and get in the back. And I just, I'm just tired of all the rules. And I'm like, dude, God is not saying no to things as much as he's saying yes to a relationship with him that lasts, that's rich and deep. He's saying Don't go cheap to Taco Bell. I'm giving you steak. God is offering us the greatest thing, the best thing in a relationship, in a walk with Him. And we sell out cheap because we want instant gratification. We want what we want now. And what we do is we walk away for what's best for us. In Ephesians chapter 2 we read, And you who were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, that's all of us, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That spirit is now at work in the sons of obedience of whom you all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says, look, everybody in the world is rushing after what they want. They want to do what they want to do, and it collapses around them. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it's in English just like it's in Greek. That's in past tense. God raised you up and placed you in the heavenly places. It doesn't say that someday you're going to go to heaven. It doesn't say that in some future time that heaven is going to be your reward. All those things are true. He's saying, past tense, that God raised you up and seated with you in the heavenly places. You're just not living there. You're still distracted by those who are owned by the children of disobedience. You're still rushing after the playthings of the world instead of focusing on the gold and mahogany and silver treasures that God set out in front of you. We walk away from the greater things and instead play with toys. Don't do like Ishbosheth and Abner. Don't do what you want to do when God is saying, There's a better way! As you guys know, one of the best ministries that we have here in this church is the, the CR program that we do on Sunday nights. And I've seen person after person after person after person who comes into those services, goes down to the altar, cries, 
and then goes out and either they call me or I hear from a word that one or two days have gone and they're, they're back on heroin. We've all seen that in this church. We've seen people who came down and wept at this altar sincerely and then they just disappear. Why, why is that? How is that possible? And it's because we misunderstand what it means to repent and what God is calling us to do. You see, we're doing like Ishbosheth and Abner, and we're going after what we want to do. And if all we do is stop and say, I'm not going to do whatever that sin is, and I hesitate to pick on any sin, because no matter what I pick on, there's somebody in here going, yeah, you need to hear that. And I'm telling you to look into your own heart. Whether it's pornography, whether it's, it's drug addiction, whether it's alcohol, no matter what it is. Maybe it's just you got a bad attitude and you look around at everybody and go, you know what, he's not. I, thank God I'm not the sinner like him. Whatever your problem is, whatever your pet sin is, we walk toward that sin and with everything in us. And then we try to confess and stop and white knuckle that we don't do it anymore. I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin. And that does not work. Christianity is not behavior modification. If you try to do that, you will fail. Even if you stop doing that outward visible sin because you've got a lot of willpower. That sin root's going to come up from some, in something else. But that's not what the Bible tells us to do. What the Bible tells us to do is repent which is a word that just means to turn. So I'm going this way after what I want. I'm walking in the footsteps of Ishbosheth, Abner, Saul. I'm doing what I want to do the best way I know how. And I realize that God's got a better way. And so I turn. And I start going this way after God. That's a completely different attitude. I'm not trying to white-knuckle my way through sin. I'm not looking at the sin now. I'm looking at Him. I've dropped the little toy that I had, and now I'm going for something better. All God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. It's not about the no's. Yes, there are things that believers don't do anymore because we don't want to. The reason we stop doing them, though, is I'm not going to let all that get in the way. I'm going after what God has for me. And God's blessings will pour down God's promises. Now, it doesn't mean that everything's going to work out for you. Don't ever hear me saying that if you get in Christ, that you'll be happy all the day. That is not true. That's a lie. Because oftentimes, oftentimes, it's when we turn that the enemy really attacks. That's when the enemy goes, i got to get this guy back. But when we turn, we realize that the real treasure is not in something. That's, you know what, honestly, if, we, if you think that what I'm talking about is money, when I say treasure, you're missing the point. Because the treasure is Jesus. The treasure is the fact that He will walk with you. The treasure is in the fact that even if you wake up in the middle of the night to that phone ringing, that you know you've still got a 
Father who's watching over you. That no matter what comes into your life, David wrote it this way in Psalm 23. He didn't say that God's going to keep me out of the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, it's understood from the way he wrote it, we're going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. He said that while we walk, you're with me. That's the treasure. So as we come to this time of invitation, let it be a time of repentance. If what you've tried to do in your life up to this point is Christianized behavior modification, repent of that. That's not going to work. That's religion based in pride. Look what I did. Instead, turn. Go after the better thing. Go after the better way. I love that this story is just showing us. Here's one way to do it, and it ends in death. Which Paul said, and when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. And then we see the way David did it, and it ends with a crown. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you forgive me for how often I have abandoned the better things for the things I can see. God, I pray that you would change us. Give us a heart that longs for you. Give us a heart that looks to you. That you would be our identity. That you would be our substance. That you would be our all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.